All right, Exodus chapter 5 is where we pick back up this evening. God has heard the cry of his people there under the taskmasters in Egypt and has determined by his sovereign grace to select uh, Moses, who, remember, was out on the backside of a desert for 40 years, tending his father-in-law's sheep and uh, not suspecting the call of God to come upon his life at the time in which it did, but yet God calls him and speaks to him, uh, tells Moses that he was going to be sent now by God uh, to go and to speak uh, on God's behalf to Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh that it was God's desire and God's plan that he would let his people go. Uh, that they might be delivered from that place of bondage and slavery. And Moses, after wrestling through his own inadequacies and uh, his own struggles and excuses and reasons why somehow this uh, just couldn't possibly come to pass, we've looked at some of those things and God continuing to encourage him and to reinforce the call of God upon his life, uh, adding as well, we know now to his side, uh, his brother Aaron. So now we kind of have this... Uh, team, uh, in a sense, uh, ready to answer the call of God. God has now added Aaron uh, to Moses' side to uh, partner along with him with the call of God. We saw there at the end of chapter 4 how God spoke to Aaron in chapter 4, verse 27, telling him to then go out into the wilderness to meet Moses. Uh, so now God has brought these two men together uh, to orchestrate his plan, to fulfill his ministry, uh, to accomplish his calling, going to use their lives in a joint way, in a sense, the different uh, gifts and enablements as they partner together in service to the Lord. And God's brought Aaron alongside of Moses now. And we left off in the end of chapter 4. And let me just read the last few verses as they flow into our section for this evening. With Moses and Aaron, it says, They now go and gather the elders of the children of Israel... Chapter 4, verse 30, And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, and they did the signs, that is those miracles, remember, that God gave to Moses to demonstrate to him that Moses, look, whatever you lack, uh, by my supernatural and miraculous power uh, joined into your life and your ministry, I'll supply supernaturally whatever you lack in the natural. And so he goes, and no doubt, probably the same signs that we saw where he cast his uh, staff down onto the ground and it turned into a serpent, and then he reached forth and picked it back up, and that same miracle was probably uh, replicated again. And then, even as he put his hand into his garment and took his hand out, it would seem that God replicated those same miraculous signs to again confirm the word of the Lord to the children of Israel, to believe that God indeed had called them. Uh, and so many times we do see this pattern in the Word of God, where God uses signs and wonders at times, and at times miraculous works, to confirm the Word of God. Uh, and, and we see that in the book of Acts even, where uh, it says that signs followed uh, the works of God and the Word of God that took place among the disciples. And, and, and that's an important thing to always remember. We don't ever want to follow signs uh, that's where we get in trouble. When we're trying to follow signs and wonders, that's many times where Christians uh, and people get off track. No, we, we, we want to look for signs to follow. When the word of the Lord is going forth and God is doing what he's doing and the gospel is being preached and the word of God is being spoken uh, at times and in God's divine prerogative, he will add uh, works and evidences, miraculous works potentially, uh, of his power to indicate and to authenticate at times 
his word to validate his messengers and to confirm his work. And it seems that's what was happening here. Last verse of chapter 4 says, The people then believed, notice how they believed, when they heard. They believed when they heard the word, because faith comes by hearing, the Bible says, and hearing the word of the Lord. So they believed when they heard uh, that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he looked on their affliction, and they bowed their heads in worship. So God's now confirmed his calling uh, to the children of Israel that he had raised up Moses to be their deliverer. Moses and Aaron share that God's plan is to deliver them out from their bondage there in Egypt and from under the authority and the dictatorship of this cruel Pharaoh who is subjecting them to this forced slavery. In chapter 5 now, the engaging moment comes where now Moses and Aaron uh, actually go into the presence of Pharaoh. And now the call of God, is, is the rubber's meeting the road here. It was one thing to go and tell the children of Israel, hey, God's heard your cry and he wants to deliver you and to share that. That was great news for them. And that was something, no doubt, probably a little easier to share, but now to walk right into the uh, the, the, the palace uh, of Pharaoh himself uh, and to tell him that God said, listen, uh, he's the boss, you're not, and you're to let his people go. No doubt this was quite a bit more intimidating, uh, but here they go, chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, it says, Moses and Aaron went in. And told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, we're not told anything here in regards to the protocol of Egypt or how they got audience with Pharaoh. The Bible just really leaves that information absent from the text. Uh, was it because of the fact that there was some working relationship that existed there among some of the elders of Israel uh, and, and maybe Moses and Aaron having an introduction through them to become before Pharaoh as this great and powerful dictator uh, among the Egyptian empire? Uh, was it maybe Aaron's, uh, or excuse me, Moses's prior connection that though 40 years had passed, there was still this family connection of a natural relationship and, and there was something among that that God was able to use? Or did God just sovereignly and supernaturally open a door? Uh, we're not told. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the Bible tells us uh, that the Lord is the one who opens and closes doors and somehow they get audience to be right in the presence of Pharaoh, to go into him and to convey this message to him. And, and you know they're very bold in what they say. It's not a lengthy message. But when you stand before a Pharaoh, uh, typically, you know, the more you say, the more dangerous it becomes. But they went, they just went straight to the point. Notice, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Again, this isn't our message. This is God's message. This is what the Lord says. And I think whenever we're uh, going to speak uh, in someone's presence, much better to just speak on behalf of what God would want to say rather than to offer our own words. So much more potent and powerful to give people the word of the Lord rather than to give them our own word or thoughts. So uh, they just say, look, we're just messengers speaking what God has said 
This is what the Lord says. Let notice my people go. Interesting. Pharaoh's perspective would be, what do you mean? Uh, these are my people. These are my slaves. But again, God demonstrating his ownership over his people. Let my people go. The reason that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. God wanted them to be liberated from their slavery and their toil so that they would be able to go out and to have a feast and to spend time in worship to the Lord. Well, verse 2, this is probably no surprise. When Pharaoh heard that, he said, Who is the Lord? Or there's our word Yahweh or Jehovah. We're not certain exactly. But that uh, Hebrew tetragrammaton, the YHVH, the, the covenant name of God. He says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, I don't know Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. Now, this is exactly what God, remember, forewarned Moses that the Pharaoh was going to do, that there was not going to be instantaneous success, even in the midst of his faithfulness, to do exactly what God asked him to do. And sometimes, as we said before, God may ask us to do something and as he asks us to do something, that does not mean there's going to be guarantee of instantaneous success when we step out and do obediently what he asks us to do. Because we need to realize God is always working on a much bigger scale than what's happening just in our personal life. So you know, God may say, look, I want you to share the gospel with this person. Uh, but that doesn't mean that just because you share the gospel obediently that you're going to be the one in that moment to lead them to Christ. Uh, God may tell you to share the word of God with someone that maybe is, is, is a Christian who's starting to wander a little bit, or maybe they, they need a reproof from the Lord. And, and God says, look, I want you to speak on my behalf. I want you to speak into their life lovingly, but, but honestly with, with authority. And, and, and guess what? They may not respond well. They, they may be a little upset or, or irritated or completely resistant. But what we are called to do is simply to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. And to leave the results in God's hand. God is more than able to work in people's hearts and lives. And that's what God was doing with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh here, we know he was a younger man at this time. Ancient records tell us historically. And he's a young, powerful, arrogant authority in a place of dictatorship. And remember, the Egyptians were polytheistic. Uh, they had many, many gods. Some people say upwards to a few thousand different gods were worshipped in Egypt at this time. And guess what? One of their primary gods was considered to be Pharaoh himself. Uh, so Pharaoh perceived himself as a god. He saw himself as a deity. So here he's hearing this word come now from Moses and Aaron, the, the Lord God of Israel. And he's saying, who's the Lord God of Israel? Uh, I, I'm God on this turf around here. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm God in these precincts, and these are my people. Uh, what is this you're talking about? You notice that's what, he, what he's saying here. He says, you know, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let these people go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So he's very obstinate that he's not going to obey this. He's not going to be responsive. Take note, I find it interesting, verse 2 here, that knowing God and obeying God are linked together here in this verse. You take notice of that, what he says? He says, I don't know the Lord, and therefore I will not obey his voice. Notice that's tied together there. Because he does not know Jehovah God, Yahweh God, he says, since I don't know this God, I'm not, well, not going to obey this God. 
And so often this is the case. We find that so often knowing God and obeying God are always linked directly together. Uh, to the measure that a person knows the Lord, typically it's to that measure that they then will be willing to obey the Lord. The more we get to know the Lord, the more willing our spirit becomes to say, you know what, why wouldn't I want to obey this good God? Why would I want to obey this all-wise God? Now, in the same sense, when someone does not know the Lord, they struggle with the concept of obeying God because they have their own perception of, of in a sense, you know, what their rules and standards and authority should be. And they're thinking, I'm not going to submit to some God that I don't even know. And, and, and we find this certainly among the unbelieving world. You know, I find it interesting from a New Testament perspective, as Pharaoh will be judged and held accountable to his rebellion and, and unwillingness to obey God's voice because he does not know God, and God will seek to work with him in this area, though he'll stay resistant. And ultimately, God will judge him for refusing to know who the Lord is, though God tries to reveal himself to him through this process. Ultimately, God will judge Pharaoh because of his unwillingness to come to know the Lord and his unwillingness to obey the voice of the Lord in his life. And from a New Testament perspective, we find that the unconverted soul, unbelievers, will honestly ultimately be judged for the exact same two things as a result of the fact that they refuse to know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, and therefore they refuse to obey the Lord and his voice in their lives. Listen to these words of Paul the Apostle, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to 10. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those, listen to what the language says, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. So again, the Lord tying this together, those who do not know the Lord and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, these two things, they're always connected together in sense of the unconverted person. They don't want to obey God because they don't know God. It's, it's common sense. But for you and I, the greatest thing we can do to help facilitate obedience to the Lord in our lives is getting to know him better. Because the more you get to know him better, the more you become willing to obey his voice when he speaks to you in his life. So Pharaoh takes a strong, obstinate stand. I don't know this God, and I will not let Israel go. I will not obey his voice. So they say, verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, they say, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or sword. So uh, they have the fear of God in their lives. Notice, because they've met with the Lord, the Lord had an encounter with them. Uh, Moses, certainly we know specifically, we've seen the account of that. They say, look, we know this God. He has met with us, and therefore we have the fear of God. And, you know, whenever you have a true encounter with the Lord, uh, it doesn't bring about arrogance. It doesn't bring about a pompous attitude. or a, It brings about a, a healthy fear of God in your life whereby you have a reverence for the Lord. And Moses and Aaron here say, listen, God is calling us to go out and to worship him and to offer sacrifices to him. He's beckoning us to come, 
please, they're, they're beseeching Pharaoh, saying, please let us go that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. In verse 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So again, completely resistant. He says, look, what, I can tell. We got two troublemakers on here. What are you guys, like union stewards or something? You're trying to get the people out of their work and give them a little extra vacation time. And he says, what are you doing? You're taking the people from their work. Get back to work. There's lots of people. You're going to distract them. He says, uh, the people need to get back to their work. Stop trying to get them out of it. And again, uh, indicating, notice the resistance of the king of Egypt, this ungodly king, wants to keep God's people from doing what? From being liberated to worship him. And you know, let me just say this by way of, you know, as you ponder through the text and mull it over in your own time reading the word of God, that in many ways, when you look at Pharaoh, this ungodly pagan king in many ways uh, he's a typology a picture uh, of satan of of a wicked king who's opposed to us and in many ways works in the same way in our lives that the devil wants to do what he can to oppose us and to hinder us and to keep us from being liberated to go and to worship the lord and he will find many different ways to do that. One of the ways that he'll gladly find to do that is not only to keep people in bondage, but Satan will also at times, I think, seek to keep us from worshiping the Lord by just overloading us with so much work and labor. Hey, you know, put these people and, and get them so overloaded with busyness and work and labor that they're not free to go and to worship the Lord and to have the spiritual uh, encounters with God that he intends for them. So he, he rebukes rather strongly Moses and Aaron, go, get out of here, get back to labor. So verse 6, the same day, notice he now orchestrates an effort to make sure this doesn't happen. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, Verse 7, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. He says, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle, he says. Therefore they cry out, saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord our God. Notice verse 9, let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. So Pharaoh says, look, we're going to put an end to this real quick. And he informs his taskmasters of what his intention was. He says, look, we used to supply straw for the brick making before, but he says, no more of that. We're going to cease that. Now, on that day, uh, they would, you know, kind of like mud bricks. They would, uh, if you've, you know, know anything about Egyptian culture or the, you know, ancient, you know, building practices, they would gather the the mud from the Nile area there, and they would mix together straw uh, with the bricks. And the purpose of the straw and the bricks basically was kind of to just to reinforce it, almost like. Uh, uh, was it rebarb? Is that right, Randy? The stuff you put in cement? There you go. It's good to have construction people around. You know, it, it was it was an added element into the bricks to kind of reinforce it to make it stronger. And it also allowed when they would drop the mold down 
for it to not stick to the molds as much. So they were they were sun-baked uh, bricks that they would make. And it seems at this point the government was supplying uh, the, the slave labor with the straw they needed to make these mud bricks, uh, which was essential and necessary to the brick-making process. But notice now that is going to be pulled from them. And now the taskmasters say, no, they need to go out and gather their own straw but same quota of bricks, don't regruce the works. In other words, he's increasing the workload upon them to try and basically exhaust them to the point where they won't even have a thought about doing anything else. The idea is, look, we're going to make them so busy and so exhausted. Uh, the problem is, is they must have too much time on their hands, and that's why they're thinking about going and doing this worship retreat for three days out in the wilderness, and we can't have that. So we need to push them to a, a, a greater degree of a workload upon them because the people are idle. He says, verse 8, that's why they're saying, let us go out and sacrifice to our God. So he says, increase the workload, take away the straw from them, let more work be put upon them. Notice he says, so they don't regard false words. Now to me that's interesting that Pharaoh, hearing the word of the Lord in his mind, he regards the word of the Lord, notice, as something that's false. They're false words to him. It doesn't make any sense to him. Why? Because he is a pagan man who does not know the Lord. And because he is a pagan man who does not know the Lord, the word of the Lord makes absolutely no sense to him. In fact, to him, it actually sounds false. It just doesn't sound believable. It doesn't sound like it's something that he could accept and comprehend. But that is a spiritual principle because when you go over into the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it tells us, you know, that, that the things of the spirit are spiritually discerned. And 1 Corinthians 2 says that the natural man doesn't comprehend the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. Uh, and because of that, that is why the unconverted person, the natural mind, when they hear scriptural truths, when they hear the word of the Lord, you're thinking to yourself, man, it's so clear. How can you not see that? Well, the reason why you can see it is because the Word of God is inspired by the Spirit of God. And if you're born again, the Spirit of God, the author of the Word of God, dwells inside of you. So because the Word of God and the Spirit of God are connected together as the Holy Spirit's inside of you, He enables you to understand and comprehend when you hear the Word of the Lord. The unconverted person, with nothing more than their natural mental faculties, trying to hear the Word of the Lord... To them, it just it sounds false. It doesn't make sense. That's why at times you may share the gospel and, and it seems so clear and evident. And person, no, 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 thanks. And you say, wow. Or you share scriptural truth, and to them, that can't be true. That's a lie. I don't believe that stuff. And and that was the case again because of the unconverted condition of Pharaoh. He says these aren't even true things. These are false words. And verse ten says the taskmasters of the people. And their officers, they went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So they have additional requirements, but their workload is exactly the same. So uh, they're already redlining it, if you understand what I'm saying. They are already exhausted and pushed to the extreme. And now they've just had an additional workload and requirement put upon them. And notice they have to produce the same quota of bricks. 
go get yourself straw wherever you can find it. So do your day's work, and then instead of coming home, eating your meal, and crashing from exhaustion, no, another shift for you. Now you go out and search for straw all around all night long so you'll have the straw you need to make your bricks when the next morning's uh, workday begins. Verse 12, so the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble, notice, because it wasn't being supplied. They're just gathering anything they can now to try and replace what they aren't being supplied by the government of Egypt anymore. And you can imagine at this point, they are just pushed uh, to the extreme, just physically exhausted, emotionally overwhelmed as they're being put into this position where things are getting worse. (laughs) It was bad enough. I mean, it says already they were under rigorous conditions and cruel bondage, and now things have gotten more and more difficult for them. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. And the Israelite officers, the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before. And the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? Again, keep in mind, they don't understand what, what, what is going on here. You know, I mean, we're already being treated cruelly. Why this new difficulty? Why this additional uh, cruel treatment? Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. Indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said, again, notice, no compassion. (laughs) Idle, he says, that's the problem. You're lazy, lazy, the idea is. Idle, idle, therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work. Notice, he doesn't want them to worship He wants them to work. And again, the God of this age, our adversary, the devil, would gladly occupy you and I with work in place of worship and do what he can to weary us rather than to get us to worship the Lord any more than we already are. Go now and work, for no straw will be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble After it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. And as they came out, verse 20, from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And I bet that was a really awkward, awkward meeting at that moment. Because now the children of Israel are aware where all this additional cruelty Uh, And the additional workload and the taking away of the straw, they're aware now exactly what's going on because Pharaoh has just told them directly when they inquired there in verses 16 and 17, uh, you're saying, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. And they're saying, whoa, that was Moses's idea. I mean, this new guy on campus who uh, marched into your throne, that, that was his idea. And now we're suffering because of what he has said, and in a sense, because of the, the, the ministry of Moses, their lives are getting worse. Their lives are miserable. Their lives are suffering even more. So they now come out of the presence of Pharaoh, and they see Moses and Aaron there meeting them. In verse 21, notice they didn't mince words. They said to Moses, let the Lord look on you and judge 
The idea is let the Lord judge you is the indication. <laughs> because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses, thanks a lot for your ministry. We, we really appreciate your ministry around here. I mean, if things were not bad enough, now you come around, you start talking about the word of the Lord and say, hey, the Lord has sent me here and the Lord wants to deliver you. The Lord's had compassion on you. He's heard your cries. He's seen your affliction and your pain and your suffering. And, and he has sent me as his messenger. He's anointed me and called me to come as his vessel to provide deliverance for you. God wants to set you free. And all oh, right, praise the Lord. That sounds fantastic. And now all of a sudden, within a few days, things have not only not gotten better, they've gotten drastically worse. And it's actually harder for the people now than it was what it was before, and, and they have absolutely no difficulty at all letting Moses know exactly how they feel about him. They just they rip in and they let the Lord judge you. Help us. The Lord sent you. We pray the Lord judges you. You think he's speaking to you? We pray that he judges you and gets rid of you because you've made our lives miserable. And, you know, I'll tell you, it is, it is a difficult thing, certainly, when we get persecution uh, from the unsaved world, you know, that's hard enough when somebody persecutes you as an unbeliever. But when the people of God lay into you for, for trying to do what God's asked you to do, maybe to help somehow, boy, that, that, that hurts almost uh, twice as much. And here they're uh, upset with Moses now because his seeming ministry hasn't helped. It's actually seen to only cause further difficulty in their lives in verse 22, Moses does really what any wise leader should do or any minister in a situation. Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on this people? Lord, why? He says, why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and neither have you delivered your people at all. So Moses does the wise thing to do in this situation. He just goes and he seeks the Lord. He doesn't retaliate and get angry with the people. He doesn't try and justify or give excuses and reasons. He says, you know what, well, I'm going to have to go talk this through with the Lord. And he finds himself in a spot, and I almost find it somewhat encouraging for our lives, in a place where, take notice, things didn't work out exactly the way Moses suspected they were going to take place when he stepped into what God asked him to do. In other words, Moses hears what God asks him to do. He obeys the Lord. He walks forward in the call of God. He does the thing obediently that God asks him to do. And no doubt, he's suspecting, according to what God's told him and God's asked him to do, okay, I kind of have a pretty good idea how this is going to work out, and it does not work out in any way. <laughs> of how he suspected that it was going to come to pass when he stepped into it obediently. Now, I know that's probably never happened to any one of us in this room before, right? Where you do what God asks you to do, you take a step of faith in a certain direction, or you obey God's plan in your life, or you follow God's calling in your life, and, and, and you have a pretty good idea of, well, okay, I, I can know exactly how this is probably going to work out. It's probably going to be this and this and, and this, and then nothing of that takes place. In fact, maybe everything seems to go the exact opposite, and rather than things go well, it seems like things get worse. 
seems like things fall apart or, or, or nothing happens. And what happens on those occasions is then we get really discouraged. And like Moses, we find ourselves going, God, why? I don't get it, Lord. I did what you asked me to do. Lord, I thought you were in this. And, and Lord, I, I did exactly what you directed me to do. And, and Lord, now I'm a little confused. Because you know this didn't seem to work out or go according to the way I suspected it was going to. And sometimes we find ourselves in that place. And I think the only thing we can do in that moment is we just need to go back to the Lord. And we just need to pray. And we just need to put it back into the Lord's hands and talk it through. But I'll tell you this, when those occasions happen, be careful. Don't give up in the defeat of human discouragement. Don't allow human discouragement in those moments to make you quit or give up or give in on what God's asked you to do or God has called you to do because it just didn't work out the way you suspected it was going to work out. Maybe as fast as you expected or the way that you expected. Sometimes this is par for the course. And we need to realize that if God said to do something, our simple responsibility is obedience. It may not happen in the time frame we expect. It may not happen in the way we suspect. But God will do what God's going to do, and we just need to trust God in the way in which he chooses to work. God's going to do what he's going to do. It just didn't happen in the way Moses suspected that it was going to come to pass. And many times in my life I've found that. You have a general sense of what God asks you to do, and we, because we're human beings, we automatically just perceive in our minds what's going to happen. Like that, 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 that. And, you know, and we just envision exactly how it's going to go. And many times God ends up doing it completely different. I'll tell you, I have found in my life that with the Lord, the shortest distance between two points is usually not a straight line. You know what I mean? I, I, I have found in my life you know, the shortest distance between two points is just a straight line. Logically, yes. But not with God. Many times with the Lord, to get us from this point to this point, he goes this way and then that way, and then he goes three miles back that way, and then he you know, goes this, and, and eventually he gets us to where he wants to get us, and he does what he wants to do. But many times it happens at times at a pace slower than we expected, or there are obstacles and resistance, and what's Moses facing? He's facing resistance. And whenever we are obeying the Lord in our lives, we know the word of God tells us there will always be supernatural resistance. The God of this age, Satan, the king of the evil empire spiritually that we wrestle against. Paul the apostle told the Thessalonians, I sought to come to you many times, but Satan hindered us. And the same way we see here uh, this Egyptian king, this ungodly king, opposing what God's wanting to do, resisting, fighting against it. Listen, we're going to experience resistance. There's always going to be spiritual resistance. Whenever we are moving in the right direction, obeying the Lord or answering his call, there will be struggle, there'll be hindrances and opposing forces because of the supernatural influence of the devil trying to discourage us, to distract us and to detour us. And he is going to do everything he can to fight against the will of God coming to pass in our lives. And we just need to be aware of that. We need to realize it's a process, it's a part of the battle. What is God wanting to do? He's wanting to set people free. He's wanting to liberate people. And I tell you this, when there, a work of grace starts to happen and the Spirit of God is starting to move on a person's life where, where God wants to save them and he wants to set them free and bring them into salvation, I guarantee you, once the Spirit of God begins to move in a person's heart and he's beginning to draw them, Satan is going to do everything in his power 
to try and hold on to them and to hinder them and to pull them back into the pit rather than just let them go free easily. And we need to remember that. That's why we have to be intercessors and persistent in prayer and not grow weary in well-doing and realize that though these things happen, they're many times par for the course and we just got to go and process them with the Lord. Lord, uh, I don't understand why is it that you've sent me. Lord, is this why you've sent me here? I'm confused. I thought, Lord, I heard from you. Well, notice verse 6, God now answers him. And the way God answers him is to indicate to him, Moses, truth be told, uh, you're going to see what I'm going to do. He says, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see, notice, what I will do to Pharaoh. You've seen what Pharaoh can do? And it seems like he was pretty powerful, how he subjected the people to more labor and cruelty. And You've seen what Pharaoh can do, but Moses, now you're going to see what I can do. You're going to see what I, as the Almighty God, can do. You will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, notice, he will let them go. No human being is going to resist the will of God. There is no wisdom or counsel, the Bible says, against the will and understanding of the Lord. The Lord will do what the Lord wills and determines to do. No human opposition, no no national empire, no, 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 no person on earth can hinder and hold back what God ultimately wants to do. So he says, listen, I don't care what he's saying or what he's doing. With a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, not only notice will he let them go, he says he's actually ultimately going to be the one to drive them out of his land. He's actually, I'm going to turn things around where he's going to push them and persuade them out of his land in the ultimate deliverance. And God spoke to Moses, verse 2, and said to him, I am Yahweh. Again, that Hebrew tetragrammaton, the YHVH, the covenant name of God. We're not certain exactly how it's pronounced, but wherever you see that capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament in your Bible, that's that's that Y-H-V-H in the Hebrew. We don't certain of the exact pronunciation, but again, it's the name whereby God reveals himself as the covenant God. Moses, I am Yahweh. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. And the term there literally is the El Shaddai, back from Genesis 17, the, the, the all-becoming one, the one who provides whatever's necessary. By my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. So he says, look, Moses, I'm progressively revealing myself. Your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew me as El Shaddai. But I'm continuing to reveal myself and revealing myself to you as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. In verse 4, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. I also have heard of the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And then you shall know, he says, that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So what do we find God doing here? In this eight verses, you now have God answering Moses as a result of his time spent in prayer. God speaks to him. What does God do? God simply just reaffirms the call of God upon his life. God reaffirms his will, and God draws his attention, what, off of himself, off of his circumstances, because isn't that exactly what Moses was struggling with back in chapter 5, verse 22 and 23? Lord, why have you brought this trouble? Lord, the circumstances are troubling. Why is it that you've sent me? Where was Moses' focus when he was struggling? His focus was on himself and what he could do his own inadequacies, his own incapabilities. He couldn't change things. He had no control over things. He's focused on the circumstances. Lord, the circumstances, they look really bad. This doesn't seem to be going. It doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem like it's happening. In fact, it seems like it's, it's falling apart and getting worse rather than get anything close to getting off the ground of what you said was going to happen. And his focus is on his own inadequacies in himself and his situation and circumstances around him. And God says, Moses, get your eyes off of all that. Moses, get your eyes on me. Get your focus on me. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's not about your circumstances. I don't know if you notice as we read through this as God is just encouraging and reaffirming his word to Moses. If you've noticed how in verse 1 through 8 there, seven times you see this repetitious uh, coupling of words where God keeps saying there, I will, I will, I will. Notice specifically down in verse 6. Again, God's saying, this is what I will do. It's not what you'll do. Moses, that's the problem. If you think you're going to do this, it'll never happen. Moses, you're missing the point. This is something I will do. All you need to do is be available and be obedient. This is something I will do in my time and by my power. He says, verse 6, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And again, this is what God would do. God wanted to bring them out from under their burdens. This is what he wanted for his people. And I'll tell you, I think this is something that the Lord wants to do in our lives spiritually as well. He wants to bring us out from under the burdens that weigh down upon our lives. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11? He says, what, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, the idea is heavy burdened. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. He said, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus wants it. He wants to take us out from under the burdens that are weighing us down. He wants to bear up those burdens for us and to liberate us from the burdens of life and the burdens of trying to feel like we have to perform to be right with God or earn his love. The legalistic works that we think, oh, it's such a burden to follow the Lord. The Bible says in the New Testament, the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. God doesn't intend to be burdensome to serve him. That's how it is in the world. The world makes us feel like we've got to fight and kick and scratch and do everything we can to offer our works and efforts to gain acceptance and approval and love. And God says, that's not how it is with me. I love you with an everlasting love, just like you are. And I won't want to lay burdens on you. God says, I want to take burdens off of you. I want to lift burdens off you. Here God says, I will, will, will lift you out, bring you out from under the burdens he also says, verse 6, to the people, I will rescue you 
from bondage. And I think the Lord wants to do that as well. I think the Lord wants to lift us out of burdens. I think he wants to intervene and to rescue us from the bondage of sin. That's spiritually what Jesus Christ has done in all of our lives. To rescue us from the, the bondage of being enslaved to sin before we came to Christ. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. And certainly, again, the idea of redeem means to pay a purchase price, to pay a necessary price in order to take someone out of slavery and bring them into a new relationship. And the New Testament speaks of how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, that his blood was the shed price for the ransom to redeem us from the bondage and cruel slavery that Satan had over our life as a taskmaster. He says, verse 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Again, God wanting relationship. And he says as well there, then you shall know that I am the Lord who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Again, take notice that, that that's what God wants. God does the things that he does in our life delivers us from burdens and rescues us and redeems us and and shows his power in our lives all for one reason relationship because he wants us to know him i tell you this god is always working in our lives in such a way in his plans and purposes for the ultimate goal of revelation because god wants you to know him he wants you to know who he is he wants you to know him as your god in a relational sense, in a personal sense, God says, I will take you as my people. I will be your God, a personal God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. He wants you to personally know. He doesn't, he doesn't want to say, well, this person knows the Lord. God says, no, I want you to know for yourself that I am the Lord because of how I worked in your life, that you saw that I am who I am in your own life in a personal, in a genuine, real way. And I'll bring you, he says, verse 8, into that land of the Egyptians, which I swore. He says, I will give it to you as a heritage. Again, God was going to give the people the land. Whether it looked like it was going to happen or not, God says, I'm going to bring you into that land. That's the land I intend for you, and I will give it to you because I am the Lord who's able to. Verse 9, so Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses, interesting, take note, because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Now, what Moses spoke to them as he reiterated what God communicated to him was clearly the word of the Lord. And quite honestly, it was full of incredible promises. I mean, you see those promises, I will, I will, I will. God speaks encouragement and love and his promises into their lives. But notice verse 9 tells us that the people struggled heeding or hearing what Moses said. Why? Because they were in anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Because of the struggle that they were under, the pain and the anguish that they were in and what they were dealing with, it was hard for them to hear the word of the Lord for themselves. And I'll tell you something. Sometimes when people are in a place where they're in anguish, Maybe they've gone through something very tragic or they're struggling, they're in pain and they're, they're wrestling under the, the cruel bondage of something that's kind of enslaved them and they're, they're struggling and hurting. At times, it's difficult for people to hear the word of the Lord, true as it may be, because of the condition of the pain and the anguish that they may be in. And we need to be sensitive to that. This was the case with the children of Israel here. Listen, we should still speak the word of the Lord 
We shouldn't hold back from speaking the word of the Lord. The Bible tells us very simply that God's word, Peter says, it's incorruptible seed. You'll think what seed is like. You can, you can have a seed and it can sit in a jar for you know a long period of time. It never does anything. And then you can plant it into the ground. And eventually that seed has encoded within it what it needs to then at the right hour, right conditions, spring forth to life and to sprout and produce what it's intended to, right? That's what God's word is. It's seed and it's incorruptible seed. So we lovingly, faithfully, sensitively, we still speak the word of the Lord and we trust, look, but I may be speaking the word of the Lord for this person, but it doesn't mean maybe that miraculously, oh, okay, praise the Lord. My anguish is gone. My pain is gone. That may not be the case. You may be speaking something into their life that at the right moment and the right hour, as God's worked with them, healing them, helping them through the grace of God, that then that word of the Lord may then take fruit and bear fruit in their life at that time. And I think it's important for us as we see this was the case with them because of the anguish of spirit that they were in. They were having trouble hearing the word of the Lord, even though Moses spoke it you know, directly. It was clear, but their condition was making them struggle with hearing what God was trying to say. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am a man of uncircumcised lips. The idea, again, of uncircumcised means to, you know, to be unprepared. Uh, you know, I, my, my lips are, are faltering, your translation may say. I'm not able to speak. He's bringing up this point again. And here is God tells him to go back to Pharaoh once again to speak to him these things. He says, uh, Lord, did you take notice? Uh, your people won't even listen to me. <laughs> I can't even get the believers to listen to me. They won't even hear my teaching. They won't even listen to the message of the Lord. And yet you're telling me to go and to talk to Pharaoh. Uh, Lord, can't you tell the problem is what? my I have faltering, unprepared, inadequate lips. I, I'm not capable to speak. That's the problem, God. I told you I'm not a good speaker. What's Moses doing? He's here he is now. He's getting introspective again. It must be the way I'm presenting it, God. It must be my communication, you know, weaknesses. And, and I just, I'm faulty in the way that I speak. And that's why even your own people won't listen to me. I'll never persuade Pharaoh. It's just, it's never going to happen. Again, he's going back to this same idea. Verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command. Notice God doesn't even really entertain this. He just gives them a command or a charge for the children of Israel and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, verse 14, down through verse 25 or 6 or so in this chapter, kind of just launches us into a little genealogy here uh, of Moses, because God wants to focus in on his family background as he will orchestrate his work through them. Verses 14 and 15 begin by giving us some of the heads of the father's houses of Reuben, the firstborn among Jacob's sons. 15 speaks of the names of Simeon's sons. And then verse 16, it jumps right to Levi because this is the line God is seeking to follow. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now, uh, take note of those three names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, because it will be through those three families, we'll see more as we go ahead, uh, that God will give specific assignments to them 
in regards to the whole Levitical uh, priesthood or the whole Levitical tribe having responsibility for the worship system. Uh, the tribe of Levi will be God's ministers, and the family of Gershon will have certain responsibilities that they tend to certain things in the tabernacle we'll see, and in the family of Merari, there'll be certain responsibilities that they have to carry certain things and to handle certain things, and we'll see more of these guys in our chapters ahead. The sons of Gershon, we get, were Libni and Shimei, and the sons of Kohath were Amram, and it says, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, and the years of the life of Koath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. Glad I don't have that name. These are the families of Levi according to their genealogies. Now Amram, again remember this is Moses' father, took for himself Jochebed, Moses' mother, his father's sister, so she was his aunt as a wife. Now apparently again, the gene pool at this time still very pure. Uh, this wasn't a problem at this point. Eventually, through Moses, God will codify in the law that families aren't allowed to intermarry. But at this point, and again, potentially it wasn't that he was marrying someone way older by marrying his aunt. Many of you you know, may have a family dynamic. You know, I have a younger brother than me that's 14 years younger than me, and it's very possible that you know, because of a stretch like that, uh, you know, I know some family dynamics where uh, you know, a, a you know, nephew or niece is actually older than their uncle. So don't get the idea Moses is, you know, married. He's already 80. So, uh, you know, or excuse me, his parents are that necessarily there's this huge age gap. But biologically, Moses's father and mother uh, were actually married in this family dynamic here. Verse 21, we read the sons of Korah were Nepheg and Zikri and the sons of Uziel, Mishael and Elphon and Zithri. And Aaron, that's Moses' brother, took to himself Elishaba, daughter of Aminadab, and she bore to him, and here were his sons, verse 23, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and we'll see more about these two men in Leviticus chapter 10, these sons of Aaron who offer profane or strange fire to the Lord, Eliezer, who will take over the priesthood, we'll see for Aaron, and Ithamar. Verse 25, notice, an Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel, his wife, and she bore him Phineas. And Phineas becomes an interesting character, a man of incredible zeal for the Lord. We'll see when we get to Numbers chapter 25. We'll talk more about him. And these are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. And here's the reason we get this, verse 26. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These, third time, are the same Moses and Aaron. So apparently there were other Moseses and Aaron, and the Bible just wants us to be able to follow genealogically. It was this Moses and Aaron from this family line. And again, as we've talked before, the purpose of genealogies had much more pertinence in that culture uh, than they do in our day today. And this was just a way of tracing to know exactly what Moses and Aaron specifically were being spoken of. Well, verse 28 says, It came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you, 
But Moses said before the Lord, again, notice, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh heed me? So God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Interesting verse 29. I just want you to tell him what I say to you. Just say all that I say to you. Don't try and get creative. Don't try and get cute. Moses, I just want you to say what I say to you. You know, Paul the Apostle will say, you know, that which I received from the Lord, I delivered unto you. And the best thing that we can say to people is what the Lord tells us to say to people. Nothing more, nothing less. Sometimes we want to hold back and not say certain things, and that can be wrong and disobedience. Sometimes we say more than what we should say, and sometimes that's not good either. Sometimes God says, look, this is what I want you to say, and I don't want you to say anything else. Just that. Let my power, and God is efficient, and God can do just as much with a few words as he can with many words. Moses, you just go say all that I say to you. But again, we see Moses hedging, struggling with his own inadequacy. Uh, God, I'm not a good speaker. I'm incapable. We'll see you next week. The Lord said to Moses, I've made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Notice he reinforces again, verse 2 of chapter 7. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his hands. So again, God just giving him this simple instruction, Moses, just say what I tell you to. Just say what I tell you to. And you know, we may not, gang, we may not have the opportunity to go and appear before a world leader to be used in the way in which Moses was, but the same spirit of God that was speaking thing to Moses that he was to then convey as a vessel of the Lord to speak on God's behalf to people. The same Holy Spirit today at times wants to use your voice and your life to speak words of truth and help and life and love and liberation to people that he puts into our paths. And you know what? Jesus said, look, even if it's thrust upon you and you find yourself before, you know, an intimidating place, you know, the, the courts and the authorities are thinking, oh, no, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? So look, in that very hour, the Holy Spirit will give you what's to be said. Just trust the Lord. And, you know, when God tells us to open our mouths, we need to open our mouths. Trusting the Lord that he has something that he wants to say. And you know what? I'll tell you. There are a lot of people in our world, in our culture, that are open their mouths that really should shut their mouths. You know, watch the news and look at media and look at all the people who have opportunity, who are speaking all the time, that you're looking at thinking, I wish that that person could be muzzled. Listen, God gives us an injunction. We have the truth. We have the words of life. We have the gospel. We have the word of God that has power behind it. And when God puts a word on our heart or something to say, to encourage someone, to comfort someone, to speak truth into a situation, to say something maybe bold to someone that is just mocking, say, listen, we should stand up for righteousness and speak the truth when God puts it on our hearts. Our world needs it. It needs it. May God give us the boldness.